Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. It's kind of funny. It doesn't matter where I go. Um, lately, it's like Vinny comes up in every podcast because it's Vinny. Everybody knows him. He's had such a great effect on the trumpet world. And there are others, Hickman. Um, but your name has been pop- popping up quite a bit. Oh, no. And, and the most recent, yeah, well, and, and it's usually followed by something very positive. Don't worry. But the most recent, I was up at uh, Chris Hasselbring's. I interviewed him and Kirsty uh, last week. And uh, we're wrapping up, and, and he goes, yeah, i got to get busy. i got an order i got to start working on uh, for, you know, Trumpet Studio. And first thing I said, is it Jason? He goes, yeah. You know, and uh, I think a lot of uh, notoriety, I mean, your studio's um, your studio. But, man, when you started the early music, I don't know if you refer to it as early music or the natural trumpet or broke trumpet ensemble, that seemed to really distinguish uh, things here at U.K., yeah, not a lot of other places in America are doing it, and certainly not to the degree. I mean, we have usually at least a dozen students playing Baroque trumpet each semester. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2017, the culmination of two and a half years' work, we had a new a degree program or diploma program, the certificate in Baroque trumpet approved. Oh, I've, I um, last year the first uh, 2018, the first student Marissa Youngs completed that, and this year two other students completed that mm-hmm. that program. Um, and we do some traveling. Um, this year, my students were hired to play in Cumberland, Maryland with Mountainside Baroque. I had a student hired to play with Bourbon Baroque in Louisville. <laughs> um, we've played, uh, gosh, Historic Brass Society uh, Conference, ITG Conference, mm-hmm. National Conference for Undergraduate Research. So, mm-hmm. uh, we're doing a lot here on campus, but I think what's really distinguished us is getting off campus and, and doing things like that. Absolutely. So it builds the national, international aspect of mm-hmm. things. Um, so what's your background in this? Is This is obviously, well, obvious to me that not something maybe you just like, hey, this sounds like some fun, let's do it. Yeah, you, well, you know, it's funny, about a week or two ago, my very best friend in the world, uh, Nick Harvey is his name, he's now a computer programmer by day, but he mm-hmm. was the first person uh, that introduced me to the Broke Trumpet. And when we were undergrads together, uh, he said, uh, I think I'm going to buy a Baroque Trumpet. And I was like, What's that? You know, I had just no idea. And when it came, I thought, you just wasted like $3,000. Why did you buy this thing? This is useless, you know? And, yeah. and I'm from Virginia. I went to college in Virginia. I went to college like 20 minutes from where I grew up. So, like, I just didn't have exposure to things like that. Um, I barely had exposure to good modern trumpet uh, mm-hmm. uh, examples. Um, and so, um, but I, the more you play, the more I kind of got interested in it. And... Uh, uh, our teacher, Jim Kleesner, there at James Madison University, he had one that was like just in the closet. And I was like, can I borrow that? So I, I noodled around on it and subsequently went to University of North Texas where there's a robust early music program. And my teacher there required all the students to take mm. four semesters of Baroque trumpet lessons. Wow. Um, so I did that, ended up minoring early music. And then when I got my first job in, in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area, um, you know, just got really serious about it, bought my own instrument and bought another instrument 
got some students interested in it. So by the time I came to UK, I was kind of doing a lot, a lot of mm -hmm. early music already. And now it's probably, I mean, gosh, in the fall semester, probably 40% of the gigs I did were on, okay. on Brooke trumpet. The spring, it was much less for whatever reason, but mm -hmm. um, they're probably between 10 and 30% of the performances I do are on Brooke mm -hmm. trumpet now. It's a, kind of a growing part of what I do. When I started the interview with uh, Chris and Kirsty, uh, I started, I, I thought it was a, a good humor. I thought it was a great joke. But I said, you know, you guys are setting the trumpet world back a couple hundred years. Well, I mean, and she was like, no, no, I think we're advancing. I said, no, no, you understand. But I think this is great. And I incorporated some into my studio just this last semester. The difference it makes in the knowledge of the trumpet, uh, not just knowing more about the historical aspect of it, but the sound and what composers may have intended. There's such great value in that. And I think I'm just at the tip of the iceberg with this, but you've really been developing this program, obviously now with a certification. Is, is it a degree or just a certification? It's a certificate. So for undergrads, it's like 15 credits of classes they take, and for graduate students, it's mm -hmm. nine hours they mm -hmm. take. And um, I think it's great. You know, I think Mary Sears says it best in her book, Performing Baroque Music, in the, in the prologue of that book. She says, um, studying historical instruments is not about defining what a correct performance is or narrowing the scope of what is acceptable to do on instruments, but rather it's expanding the palette of what is possible for a beautiful performance. Mm. And yes, I do think it has to do with going back to the original instruments and composers' intentions and everything like that, but I don't want what we do here at UK and early music to be like a my way or the highway kind of a thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, what Maurice André did with the piccolo trumpet was beautiful and exquisite trumpet playing, was it exactly the way that Bach or Handel would have wanted it played? Probably it's pretty far away from that, actually. <laughs> but it's still beautiful, gorgeous, mm -hmm. expressive music. And I don't mm -hmm. think that we should poo-poo, you know, what he or others have done. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, you know, within the early music world, what I do, playing on a replica instrument with vent holes, I play like the German three-hole, mm -hmm. um, you know, system, um, there would be some people that would say, well, why are you using holes, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think I don't think it's really like one way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I just think it's it's a way of expanding, kind of like Mary Sears says, expanding the palette um, of possible beautiful performances. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of advantages have you seen in your studio, even on the modern modern instruments of incorporating this? Sure. Well, you know, ear training ear training is a big thing, and ear training is important even if you're just playing a you know. Uh, Yamaha B-flat trumpet with a 3C in it, you know, like uh, ear training is important. But on the Baroque trumpet, um, you the targets are so much smaller, mm -hmm. and accuracy is such a challenge that um, I've had many students comment when they go to the modern trumpet after having played Baroque trumpet for a while, um, that their, um, their, their accuracy is so much better. <laughs> I have a student right now who, um, in the fall semester, was kind of struggling with flexibility. We were doing irons type stuff and and her flexibility wasn't what she wanted it to be and she was one of the students that was on that trip to cumberland maryland and so we basically left here like on a well i forget maybe on a wednesday and mm -hmm. we came back on sunday night or something like that we came back after the concert and uh, she happens to have her lesson on monday morning and it's funny um, after having played exclusively broke trumpet for a week she came back and it's like she's like flexibility is so much easier you know what i mean because, you know, when we, when we talk about flexibility on a modern trumpet, what we're usually talking about is quickly moving through pitches without using your vowels. Typically, that's, you know, lip slurs or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. All these terms have their own problematic indication, you know, but you know yeah. what I mean. And, you know, so, like, what we do on an iron, out of the irons book, that's everything on the Baroque trumpet, you know what I mean? And so that's another reason. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, ex, um, the musicality part of it. For me, that's the biggest uh, reason to play Baroque trumpet. Mm -hmm. Um, when you start, you know, on the modern trumpet, or really any modern instrument, when you say to someone, can you be more musical? Can you be more expressive? Typically, the principal thing you're talking about is dynamics. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about early music is dynamics are like maybe the 15th or 16th thing on your priority list for expression. There's mm -hmm. so many things that are much more important uh, than that. Um, articulation on a Baroque trumpet is just way, way, way up there. Um, the influence of the human voice, the influence of dance, um, the influence of meter, the influence of rhythm, the influence of affect, um, A-F-F-E-C-T, mm -hmm. that's, that's a huge one. 
um, the influence of rhetoric. Um, I could go on and on. All the things that are way above dynamics. Mm -hmm. And dynamics, there's a, there's a role for dynamics and expression for sure. But you start to have all these extra tools for expression that we just don't even think about in, 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 in modern trumpet. Um, when we, get, we go to a competition or we, a student plays a jury and the adjudicator says, yeah, you need to be more musical. You need to be more expressive. Mm -hmm. Typically, they mean like more contrast. dynamic contrast. Exactly. You know what I mean? right. And I think um, playing period instruments really gives us um, some more tools at our disposal well beyond just simply more dynamic contrast. I, one of the first and best impressions for me was just the, the timbre. And, mm -hmm. and the possibilities of color on the that instrument and uh, so you know I, I bought uh, one of the brass instruments the brass for beginner I brought I bought one of those and of course it's great because I can use my own mouthpiece I don't have to use a period mouthpiece on there or I, I know Pickett makes one with a modern shank I can you know I could use that but um, still the colors it's like oh wow and I mean you can you can push it and get it bright closer to the modern trumpet but now my wife, she's kind of like, really? And I'm like, okay, maybe it's an acquired taste. You know, <laughs> she's a violinist, but um, you know, I'm I'm just I'm dumbstruck by the possibilities, and I love it because now we've got more, so many more choices. You know, if we want to go back and incorporate these into the school orchestra now, my students could, you know, pretty easily put this in, uh, you know, and learn along the way. They don't have to be perfect. At the beginning, right? I mean, especially on these uh, these shorter instruments that Chris is making. Mm -hmm. um, but the color, I, I think, is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And John Foster uh, gave me one of his CDs, and, and I know there's some other uh, fantastic players out there, but holy cow! I mean, John just he sings through that. It's it's gorgeous. Yeah, John is a big influence <clears throat> on what we do here at UK. Um, that disc you see there on the wall, the disc the UK Baroque Trumpet Ensemble recording, he was a featured soloist. Yeah, on he that. gave me a copy of that. Oh, there you go. You guys sound absolutely fantastic. Oh, and I love the kettle drums on there, too. Oh, great. That's good. You know, what was great about having John here, it's not just that he's a great soloist, which he, of course, is, but he worked with us for that week. And he really, I mean, he held us um, to a high standard with mm. in terms of pitch and articulation and all these things that we're talking about right mm -hmm. now. And so it was great to have him coach us. He's usually here, you know, at least once a year mm -hmm. and um, working working with the UK Trumpet Studio and a lot of students have had lessons with him. And yeah, he's a great example of, of someone who, who can really make the instrument sing. And and I agree wholeheartedly, um, the, the timbre of the Baroque trumpet, the, the colors that you can get out of the Baroque trumpet. I joke with my students, you know, on, on the modern trumpet, one of the things we really work hard at doing, especially those of us who want to be, play, be, you know, typical American orchestral players, is to establish a homogenous sound from top to bottom in all dynamic ranges, um, and to really, uh, uh, you know, just establish that homogenous sound. And I joke with my students. I say, you know, if you're having trouble, um, you know, matching sounds across registers, maybe the Baroque trumpet is for you. Because mm -hmm. not just on the Baroque trumpet, but on the Baroque violin, and really even, even Baroque um, singers, uh, you were to exploit and embrace those differences mm -hmm. uh, in, 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 in your instrument, in different registers. Um, even the human voice, you know, um, um, you didn't try to practice and cultivate homogenous sound from mm -hmm. top to bottom. You would want to explore, uh, exploit those, those colors. And so, you know, on the Baroque trumpet, if you're playing really low, and it's like... <clears throat> You know, five one five one five one. It might in some settings, especially if it's like outdoor field music, you're going to really bark that. Yeah. You know, and it's going to be something you're using to communicate over a long distance. I, I joke with students, it's like, you know, baroque text messaging. You know, you you are <laughs> sure. announcing what's happening from a, a distance far away, and then sometimes, a mo large part of the, the time, you're playing in the clarina register, much higher, uh, trying to imitate the human voice. And um, and everything in between, you know. So it's it's really really wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, you balance uh, the amount of playing you do between baroque and modern in your own practice and preparation. Or? For me, um, with this job here, I'm pretty busy with all the students that are here, and I, I travel a lot with a couple of different groups, primarily quintessonic brass. You mentioned Vinnie mm -hmm. Martino earlier. He's the other trumpet in that group. So for me, in terms of balance, I practice what I have coming up, sure. you know, so 
Um, if I have something coming up on Baroque trumpet that I'm mostly only practicing Baroque trumpet, mm -hmm. um, and so I, I if, if if I have um, you know like um, back in December I I played uh, principal trumpet with Bourbon Baroque on the Magnificat. So in probably the two weeks leading up to that, anytime I was practicing, I was practicing mm -hmm. the Baroque trumpet on and I was playing Magnificat, mm -hmm. and I didn't try to counterbalance by also say playing Petrushka on the side, you know, you know what I mean? I just simply yeah, played that. Yeah. Um, uh, for the moment, um, now I played Baroque trumpet last week, one piece uh, on, a, on a recital for the trumpet camp we have here at UK. So, um, and I, I, I looked at that piece a little bit, but mm -hmm. um, at the moment, uh, nothing is too soon. I'm going to play opera next week in Charlottesville, mm -hmm. so, um, and, and then I'll be, I guess I do have something coming up in a couple weeks on Baroque trumpet. Mm -hmm. I'm, there, um, we have kind of a ITG Baroque Trumpet Ensemble we're putting together to premiere a piece I wrote on the Festival Trumpets concert. Hmm. Um, but I wrote it, so I don't have to practice it too much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I sort of played it as I wrote it, sure. you know what I mean? But sure. So I guess that's the next Baroque Trumpet thing coming up. But uh, let's for a moment say I didn't play that piece and it was like something else. Um, I'd practice it because it's coming up. Sure. But if I didn't have that coming up, I, I'd probably, sometimes I'll go a month and not play a single note on the Baroque mm -hmm. Trumpet, you know? And the same thing for C trumpet. You know, um, last week at the camp, I played five solo pieces, um, and um, none of them happened to be on C trumpet. So I didn't pull my C trumpet out of the case mm -hmm. all week long. Mm -hmm. Well, I think maybe in a lesson sure. I was teaching, I might have pulled it out. Sure. But I, I'm not the kind of a player that thinks, and nor am I the kind of teacher that thinks you need to play 30 minutes on the piccolo trumpet and 30 minutes on the B flat, 30 minutes on the C, and 30 minutes on the brook trumpet. I don't really do that. Mm -hmm. I, I think what I do every day is I do about a 40 to 45 minute daily routine. It's mm -hmm. note for note, exactly the same every day on my mm -hmm. B flat trumpet. And then any other practicing is what I have coming up. Mm -hmm. I don't try to, uh, you know, get in a piccolo trumpet every mm -hmm. day. Sometimes, you know, after Christmas, from like the Christmas till, you know, I might go a long time with not touch sure. my piccolo trumpet, sure. you know what I mean? So um, balance is, uh, I feel like if you're a, if you're physically in shape and you're getting a good daily routine in, then we as trumpet players just need to work on the music that's coming up. That, mm -hmm. At least that's how I look at it. We'll come back to the routine in a second. I want to ask about, uh, uh, you play a replica natural trumpet mm -hmm. or maybe a couple of different. Uh, mm -hmm. um, you've played, obviously, the Brass for Beginners trumpets. I actually have not. Oh, no. I thought maybe you had. I haven't played them. The, the reason Chris had mentioned I'm going to probably get some from him is um, we're, we are at a happy situation now where we have more students then we have instruments here mm -hmm. at UK, um, and rather than purchase, you know, a bunch of super expensive, full-size replicas like my wonderful Egger, mm -hmm. um, getting a few of his w would be ideal mm -hmm. to kind of get just to get a few horns in students' hands. And if those students become interested, then I would encourage them to get their own instrument. So you've seen the video of I've forgotten his name already. The the fellow from the Met, who won an audition. Uh, I did on see that Chris's video. Yeah, yeah. Horns. Yeah. Which I think is remarkable, you know, that, uh, you know, somebody's out there with a thousand, several thousand dollar replica and here he comes with, you know, less than a thousand dollar short model. Um, I, I think just, it's great. And I think it's just that it's another thing that makes this so much more accessible to, you know, studios like mine or schools mm -hmm. like mine where you're limited on funds. And you can't go out and, I can't go out and spend that kind of money on real, sure. true replicas. And Chris's horns uh, and everything they put together, I, I think they're going to be pleased. Not yeah. that you're looking for that from me, but um, so let's go back to the routine. Sure. Um, well, we'll describe a little bit of it and and how it evolved to that. And you see here on my desk the two breathing bags I've got. I start every day with breathing, and um, I probably do I don't know between two minutes and. Four four minutes of breathing before I play a note. I don't have any exercises that I do. Um, I'm a very kinesthetic player. I really believe in muscle memory. Um, I, I, I like to teach in a way that has a lot of, you know, I'm a systematic teacher and I got, you know, plans and strategies. But for me as a player, I really do play, I want to feel good when I play, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I do breathing exercises. I just take deep breaths. I watch and make sure the breath bag is, breathing bag is, is filling up. And then when I start to feel good, I start playing trumpet. You know, I, I, I'd love to say, here's a handout of the breathing exercise sure. I do, but I don't really do that. Mm -hmm. I just have that. And then I'll do a little bit of mouthpiece buzzing, usually between 30 seconds and a minute. Mm -hmm. And that's the only buzzing I do all day, but I do start on the mouthpiece. 
and then I do a little more breathing, maybe 20 seconds, again, until I feel good, just, just long, deep breaths, like whole notes and half notes. Mm -hmm. And then I play, uh, which is basically Chickowitz long tones. Um, they were adapted my, by my teacher, Jim Kleesner, who mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier. Um, and um, I play a page of those, and then again, I go back to my breathing bag. Then I play all my scales um, to full, full range, go back to breathing bag, and then I work out of the Richard Schubrecht book, mm -hmm. uh, The Graded Lip Trainers for Trumpet. I play business players, chapter two, numbers one and two. I do this <laughs> every day. And I think those are important to do because, again, getting back to kinesthetic memory, I really get used to what it feels like to play a B below the staff and then a B above the staff. I get used to what it feels like to come in on a high C. That's And then uh, the that number two on that exercise uh, out of that book is where you uh, start really soft and crescendo and then get soft again. So I'm doing my full dynamic range, crescendo and diminuendo on every note on the trumpet um, from, you know, pedal C to double C every, mm -hmm. every day. And then um, after I do that, usually I don't, by that point I'm in the warm up, I'm kind of sort of done with the breathing bag at mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. And then I do Clark one um, with the metronome. Again, working on um, fundamentals, finger dexterity. I also play those like triple piano, soft as I can. Mm -hmm. And then I play Clark four, since one gives me the chromatics, <clears throat> four gives me all my scales again, but also all those tricky fingerings, yeah, like right. the D to E real right. fast, one, the mark 144. And by that point, I'm kind of ready to go. Mm -hmm. And so um, if I'm in a hurry, I can sort of squeeze all that in about 25 or 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. But usually I'll do it with a generous amount of breathing bag and some email in there as well. Mm -hmm. And so it takes more <laughs> like around 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. I, do, I basically do that note for note every mm -hmm. day. I know it's kind of some people might find that to be a little. Well, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I, I'm kind of a Chickowitz fan. And I, I like that he said, if you want to perform on a, on a consistent basis, you've got to practice on a consistent sure. basis. And, and I look at consistency as in, uh, in the, what you do from the very first note of the day, mm -hmm. you know. And so I, I buy into that. I might not do exactly the same thing, but I completely understand and appreciate that. How did you develop that? Did, was that kind of born out of previous you know, begging and borrowing from other routines? or Someone asked me this last week at the camp. So I developed that um, the summer between my junior and senior years of college. And my first three years of college, I couldn't figure out how to warm up. Like I tried everything and nothing really worked. And um, sometimes I would not warm up. And, um, and sometimes I do just Chickawit, sometimes I do whatever. I mean, I tried everything. I tried Stamp, I tried, you name it. I had all the books and mm -hmm. tried them all. Mm -hmm. And nothing really ever gave me the consistency I, 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 I wanted. And, um, and so I, I kinda, you know, um, he probably doesn't know this, Matt Stuver, he, he's now a saxophonist in, in the Navy band. Uh, he wasn't a Commodores, but I believe he went to a different band. Uh, mm -hmm. But he's, um, he was always warming up around the same time I was, about 7 a.m. every day. And I would mm -hmm. kind of listen to him. I think, well, let's see, he's doing, he's got this going, he's got some technique, he's got some long tones. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, there's probably a couple boxes i got to check. Maybe I'm not warmed up, mm -hmm. or maybe I don't feel like I'm getting a good routine because I'm, I'm leaving some stuff out. So I thought, okay, what can I do for long tones? Well, let's try Chickowitz. What could I do for technique? Well, how was try Clark? You know I, mean? I kind of kind of did that, mm -hmm. and uh, um, over that summer, I kind of I kind of arrived at this, and and I remember, it's so funny, I have this memory. I, one, I had three roommates, and one of them had moved out for the summer. We were anticipating our new roommate moving in, and we we're all music majors, so that bedroom was like the practice room, yeah. <laughs> and I was in that practice room, and I finished this this routine I now do every day, kind of like for the first time. Mm -hmm. I thought, man, that feels, this feels pretty good. And I went through my day to my rehearsals. I'm mm -hmm. like, man, that kind of worked. I'll mm -hmm. do it again tomorrow. I did the next day. I did the next day. Well, that was 15 years ago. You know? Wow. <laughs> and I basically kind of just stuck with it. That's you know? great. But it, yeah. I just kind of took me some time. really sure. took me about two or three years of experimentation mm -hmm. before I arrived. And this, mm -hmm. you know, it's not for everyone. I'd say most of my students do not do that routine. A couple mm -hmm. of them do. Um, and usually... Um, so this year in the fall semester class, um, I did a Tuesday, uh, sorry, Monday morning, um, 8 a.m. warm-up class. And so for the 15 weeks of the semester, every Monday morning we did a different warm-up. Mm -hmm. And one of them was mine. And the others were all kinds of other stuff. Mm -hmm. We did the Whip Rudd, we did Chickowitz, we did Stamp, we did everything. Mm -hmm. 
And um, some of them, like mine, and mm -hmm. I think do it, and some of them found something else. So I don't, you know, I'm not like, you know, a warm up, like everyone has to do it this way, but this, for, for me, works pretty well. I interviewed somebody earlier today um, who was like, man, why are we wasting our time? Let's get to the music right away. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I can see the value in that, but is there any reason you couldn't approach your warm-up in a musical fashion? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's not a rhetorical question. Is there a reason? Do you approach your warm-up? So I'll say this. I wish I hadn't used the word warm-up. I don't warm-up. It's a daily routine. So in other words... Um, I know, that's a, it's semantics for everything, from right? From the very first thing I do, even on the breathing bag, it's about music. Even the mouthpiece, is, I, even, it's not like I'm just establishing response or mm -hmm. getting my lips flapping in the mouthpiece. Like, I want it to be beautiful. Mm -hmm. From the very first long tone I play on my trumpet, I want to sound as good. I want my best sounding note of the day to be my first note. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I don't really think, I mean, I've probably used the word warm-up in this interview, but I think of it as a daily routine. If I had to just play, I think I, think I can do that. It's been a long time since I tried to do that. <laughs> but... Um, I think, yeah, I, I agree. You should just make music from the very beginning. Yeah. And I believe that you should be able to play without warming up. I believe in both of those. But for me, especially, you know, getting back to your larger point about like balance and Baroque trumpet and B flat and C and everything, for me, the way I'm able to say, take a month off the Baroque trumpet or take a month off the piccolo trumpet mm -hmm. or, or take a however long off C trumpet and still be able to pick it up and play it again, I think it's because my general. Um, Strength, musicality, yeah. technique is being calibrated and maintained every single day. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I, I'd say, it's not really a warm-up. It's, it's a daily routine of that every day I want it to be easier. Every day um, when I play um, like Clark 1 and I play it soft, I'll play a little softer every day. Every day when I play Schubrecht and I'm doing a crescendo diminuendo, I want that loud volume to be a little bit louder every day. Mm -hmm. Every day when I'm trying to play scales to my full range, I want the double C to be just a little bit easier every day. So it's not just about warming up. It's about that um, quantifiable um, improvement from day to day. Mm -hmm. And I, for me, I can see that because I'm comparing today to yesterday and to the day before. I, I really appreciate you saying that because I know a lot of times I've had students who think, oh, routine, I'm going to get stuck. You know, and kind of go mindless. And you turn on Netflix or something while you're, you're going through the, just going through the motions. Uh, but there's real intent with with how you approach this. Yeah, it's not just left foot, right foot, left foot, right. You know, you're yeah. actually going somewhere with with focus, with a goal in mind. So, I think that's important, and it keeps you know not to be cliche, but it keeps the routine from becoming a rut. Sure. Right. Totally. So very cool. Um, so we uh, got a little bit of uh, uh, history. Uh, you mentioned. UNT. Um, well, let's start here. You're UK for how many? Six years now? I just finished my sixth year. Where were you before here? I taught at a small school in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, um, the capital of the Cherokee Indian Nation. The name of the school is Northeastern State University. Um, I was there also six years. And while I was there, um, Within about two hours, there were a lot of orchestras I played with, mm -hmm. um, primarily the Tulsa Symphony Orchestra, of course, in Tulsa, mm -hmm. and their, their companion groups, the Tulsa Opera, uh, Tulsa Ballet. Hi, Tim McFadden and Steve Hafner, if you're listening <laughs> right now. They're wonderful players I got yeah. to play with there. Um, I was principal trumpet of the Arkansas Philharmonic in mm -hmm. Bensonville, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. We sometimes call it the Walmart Orchestra because Bentonville is the capital of Walmart. Oh, right. Uh, I mean, sorry, Bentonville is, the, is where the... Sam Walton. Uh, ...is where the um, headquarters of... Mm -hmm. uh, Walmart is, and also where the very first Walmart store, Walton's mm -hmm. Five and Dime, is there. Um, I also played, was a member of um, Symphony of Northwest Arkansas. Um, there's some other groups in that area I played with, the Signature Symphony. Um, we had a pretty active faculty brass quintet at, at my school. In fact, mm -hmm. you can see their picture right there on the wall. Um, where am I looking? Uh, right there. Oh, right there. Northeastern State University oh, faculty gotcha. brass quintet. Gotcha. Robert Bailey was the other trumpet in there. He was my predecessor at, at that school and was just a wonderful mentor. So I was there six years and um, it was a wonderful place. Uh, it's um, uh, really, people describe Tahlequah as the flower of Oklahoma. It was just so verdant and green mm -hmm. and beautiful and um, hilly, at the, you know, at the, in, in the, right there at the foot of the Ozark Mountains. Um, and, um, but I'm from Virginia originally and um, I kind of always wanted to, you know, be at a flagship school and everything. Mm -hmm. And so UK offered 
both um, being at a flagship school, a large school of music, but also for me being an East Coast boy, getting me closer to mm -hmm. home. And then mm -hmm. a lot of the groups I like to play with, um, you know, there, there wasn't a whole lot of early music in Oklahoma, just <laughs> so to speak. And so, um, you know, being able to be here of an east coast slash midwest mm -hmm. area there's i can mm -hmm. drive to a lot more gigs um, sure. here than i could before sure and then before uh you and before the gig out in oklahoma i was at north texas right before that oh, yeah, okay. university of north texas and that's your doctorate there correct yes okay in early music i have a doctorate in trumpet performance mm -hmm. uh with a minor in early music i studied okay. with keith johnson yeah well his name came up uh, a couple times earlier today oh really oh yeah he's the best yeah yeah um and so then before that, let's just get a little bit of background. Where'd you do your master's and bachelor's? And sure. Uh, bachelor's degree was at James Madison University. We mentioned Jim Kleesner just a minute ago mm -hmm. from Virginia. And then a master's degree in Ohio at Bowling Green State University mm -hmm. with George Novak um, and also Charles Stein. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now, back to the interview. So, did you choose your schools based on uh, who was teaching there or the program? You know, um, with undergrad, um, I, so I was, a, first of all, I'll say I was a first-generation college graduate. Uh, my parents were first-generation high school graduates, mm. so um, I didn't really know, know how to apply for college. Uh, um, I did well in school. I was my high school valedictorian, but I didn't really have any mentorship like um, where to apply. So I applied to one school, James Madison. It was the closest school to where I grew up. Mm -hmm. I was just, it was a little miracle that it was like the best music school in Virginia <laughs> and the, 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 the only real comprehensive school at that time, mm -hmm. you know, um, for music. So it was really lucky and had a wonderful teacher there, Jim Kleesner. But it wasn't like some exhaustive process. You know, it's funny, uh, it, still to this day it, at my mother's house in Virginia, I have the, the JMU 1999, which is the year I graduated high school, view book of all the classes and everything. And I had one other school that I almost applied to, and and I didn't. And that was Indiana University. No kidding. And you being, you know, there in Indiana, you might think, oh, of course, because it's, you know, a big music school. Had nothing to do with the music school. Um, I had a very dear great aunt who lived in Bloomington. <laughs> and she had encouraged me to apply there yeah. and live with her and go to yeah. school. She, you know, son, we got a big, big school in, in my town, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I, ha I, apl I, I requested the view book. Um, but it just seemed too far away from home, sure. so I, I didn't ever follow through in applying. I only applied to GMU, and um, I wanted to be my high school band director, so mm -hmm. I went there as a music ed major. So that's why I picked GMU. It was just the only school. I, I mean, I just mm -hmm. the only one. I, I, looking back, if I hadn't gotten in, like <laughs> I maybe have, mm -hmm. you know, I mm -hmm. certainly wouldn't be here. But, but how was your how was your trumpet playing when you started there? Uh, mediocre. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, it, it wasn't great. Um, um, for my high school, I was okay. Um, I had to go through an embouchure change. I had, I had a lot of problems. Uh, it was pretty bad, probably. <laughs> was it was it a result of being mostly self-taught, or? Well, you know, I'd say this. I um, was mostly self-taught until late high school, and then um, just uh, kind of by chance, there was a former band director who had went to GMU. His name was Kevin Haynes, and he was a music ed major that had left the music career to become a Methodist pastor. And he was like just down the street and hey, there's a trumpet player at the local church. So mm -hmm. I took lessons from him for a while. Mm -hmm. And that was, I mean, a, a key because he exposed me to repertoire like Artunian and Haydn and Hummel and mm -hmm. Ken and he got the, that repertoire in my hands. So that mm -hmm. was really important. But um, I did sort of come from a musical background because I did guitar lessons when I was a little kid. And um, my mother, you know, had taken some piano lessons and could sort of play piano by ear pretty mm -hmm. well and you know sang in church choir and stuff like that but um i mean i don't think i mean i i, I wasn't anything special in, in high school mm -hmm. certainly and then in terms of how to pick my master's program i really again it was a similar kind of a thing i um i was planning to go right into teaching and um kind of my senior year i thought you know my trumpet playing starting to get together now i'm not quite ready to like maybe i should 
pursue this a little bit more. And, and I'll never forget, uh, I, uh, I'd play my senior recital, and uh, it was like November of 2002. I think my senior recital was November 16th. And it was on a Thursday, I think. So it was the next, <laughs> the next lesson after that. And it was kind of end of the semester, and I walk in for my next lesson mm -hmm. after my recital, and Mr. Kleesner says, uh, oh, you don't have to come in today. Uh, we're pretty much into the semester. Congrats on your recital. You know, mm. it's only like two weeks left. You can just right. take the rest of the semester. I'm like, well, I kind of came by because I wanted to talk about grad school. <laughs> and mm -hmm. he was like, what? Grad school? Like, you're interested in grad school? And I mentioned to him that, you know, I, I was felt like I was starting to make progress on trumpet. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he's like, well, what? you know, you can just practice. You don't need to get your master's for that, you know. And, and then I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of thinking about maybe I want to teach college instead of mm -hmm. high school. And he, and he talked about how I had good grades and maybe I should consider like musicology or theory. And looking back, uh, that was very good advice because, you know, I do things like early music now. Sure. And I remember um, uh, he said, well, I'm going to suggest you do is go visit with James Hyatt. He was the, like the chair of music theory. Talk to him about the theory program. Maybe you want to get a master's in theory. You could always take lessons. And mm -hmm. I thought that sounds like a good idea. But once I met with James Hyatt and talked about what a master's in theory really is and lots of time in the library and research, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I didn't want any part of that, you know? <laughs> so um, I was from Virginia, and he had a couple of things that had come in the mail, flyers. And um, he had one was from UNC Greensboro, and one was East Carolina. And I'm, he's like, yeah, they're close by. You could drive down and mm -hmm. audition. So I auditioned there. And got into both places and was probably going to go to one of those. And then a few years before, he had a student. His name was Brad Zimmerman, who went to Bowling Green State University. And he got a thing in the mail, and he showed it to me. He's like, you know, this could be a good fit for you. You mm -hmm. should email Brad Zimmerman and ask him a few questions, but this might be a good fit. And so um, I ended up applying to that third school, Bowling Green. And um, I just, I, it was it's kind of weird, one of those experiences in your life even before I played the first note of my audition, even before a lesson, when George Novak opened the door and welcomed me in, I just felt, I'm, like, I'm home now. Yeah. This is where I belong. Great feeling. And I just, uh, he had a very, um, I don't know, grandfatherly disposition, I guess. It was kind of the end of his career. And he always, he always looked after me as a person first and always would ask me how I was doing, are classes going okay, you see any good movies lately, you know. And um, to this day is one of my most important mentors. I call mm -hmm. him, you know, I try to call him every couple of weeks and we mm -hmm. you know, talk for an hour. And um, I just sort of felt at home right away. And um, um, I had a great experience there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then North Texas was a school I actually researched and chose to go okay. to. By that point, I sort of knew a few things. Mm -hmm. And um, I had read uh, both of Keith Johnson's books at that time. By that point, I really wanted to study with Keith Johnson. Mm -hmm. So that was the school that I really had researched and pursued a specific teacher, you know, got on an airplane, took an audition, and, mm -hmm. and really did that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have a big search. I, I actually only auditioned at two schools for my doctorate, North Texas and Florida State. And the reason for those two schools was early music. At mm -hmm. the time, those were the really the only two places right. where the teacher was had some Baroque trumpet stuff going. Mm -hmm. Keith Johnson at North Texas and Brian Goff at Florida State. Mm -hmm. So those are my two schools. But I researched them pretty well, mm -hmm. and um, once I got in North Texas, I knew that's where I wanted to go. You know, it's, I, it's hard to think about uh, anybody just being a teacher anymore. You know, I can't imagine not being out there playing. And, and I'm, I'm, it's not a question so much as just an observation that I think, you know, it's awesome that we get to do both. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, teaching reinvigorates my playing and vice versa. And I don't know if you kind of feel the same way about Totally. That. You know, at my first job, we mentioned Northeastern State University in Oklahoma. It was a teaching university. This school was a research university. And I had been there two or three years, and there was this huge like reply to all with what seemed like every member of the whole university in it. Because the university was thinking about getting rid of the way like the teaching and research and service went and becoming really truly a teaching school where maybe people would teach an extra class but then not be expected to do, to do any research mm. and creating these sort of, um, you know, these, these positions where you were truly a teacher. You, you weren't expected to publish an article or mm. play a recital or whatever. And this is like university-wide. They were thinking about maybe not all the professors, but creating some lines like that, um, you know, to, and some people that felt they really wanted to teach. And mm -hmm. I remember, I'll never forget in this big reply to all, someone replied to all and said, and they were quoting someone. Mm -hmm. talking about what is the purpose of research, why do we research. And I forget who the quote was attributed to, but it said basically, 
if we don't research, we have nothing to teach. Hmm. You know what I mean? Right. And for me, I can't tell you how often when I'm in a lesson, how often I'll refer to something I did the previous week on a gig. Right. You know what I mean? Or if I'm, um, or if I'm out teaching, you know, I'll, I'll never forget. You know, I, I spent about ten days in Brazil in January, and when I came back, I was so invigorated because um, I was seeing, first of all, seeing some students who could do some things I never couldn't believe students could do, and then seeing stu students be like, "How are you having this problem?" You know what I mean? And then I would incorporate <laughs> those positives and negatives, and co maybe come up with some new strategies to mm -hmm. use with my students. So I think you know, um, performing gives you that real world experience. Um, and I also think that teaching makes you a better performer. Mm -hmm. For one, I'm sight reading constantly because, you know, oh, right. my students are bringing all this hard repertoire in here. They're yeah. trying to get in the national trumpet competition. They're right. playing Tomasi and Desenclo, and you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't practice those every night. And mm -hmm. so if I'm trying to model what I think should be done, I try to play a lot in lessons. So I'm, I'm reading and playing a lot. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the research that we do, research in quotes, you know. Sure. Um, as performers makes us a better teachers and I also think being a teacher um, especially if you're the kind of teacher who's modeling a lot who's listening a lot mm -hmm. who's really engaged and um, taking ownership um, of that learning process um, and and so that you can eventually give that ownership back to the right. student if you're really engaged I think being a, a good teacher also can improve your playing mm -hmm. I know it has for me well I agree yeah. and you know uh, I know you can go down all kinds of rabbit holes on YouTube but what a great resource, you know, for the latest performance. Maybe something's not out on, uh, on a label yet. You can't, you can't buy it wherever. Uh, but having access to so many great players and to be able to show, you know, and, and I even think the example of having uh, females in my studio, and now we've got Tina Helseth and Allison Balsam. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, actually, um, Marissa, uh, I'm going to interview her at oh, ITG. Oh, she's great. You know, and I didn't realize she was... I didn't realize she was a student here. Yeah, be sure to ask her about the ultrasound research. It's okay. going to change the trumpet world. Okay. Um, basically, everything I thought about the tongue has been disproven by Marissa Youngs. And uh, she's oh. very smart and has made some discoveries that has really radically changed the way I think mm -hmm. about playing the trumpet and certainly teaching the trumpet. You mm -hmm. know, I no longer say, raise your tongue to the position of E to go higher. Because that's certainly not what I do. Mm -hmm. Where my tongue is at is it not, uh, not a position used in any language on mm -hmm. earth. And so I'll let, I don't want to steal her thunder, but she can no, tell you all about that. It's really you know, but isn't it funny how you get into uh, these these ideas, these ways of teaching? You know, like it used to be the Farkas book, which is still an important book. Yeah. You know, uh, that textbook embouchure, well, not so textbook anymore. I mean, there's Jens plays off to the pretty well off to the side. Uh, I don't know anybody that's got the absolute perfect embouchure anymore. Uh, but to think about, uh, I know so many people that still teach, um, and I actually did a presentation at an Indiana Music Ed conference on uh, the correct tom terminology and physiology, anatomy of the breathing process. Mm. And let's use the right terminology in, in how we teach the breathing process. Mm -hmm. And uh, because, like everybody else, I grew up thinking the wrong things. You know, saying open your throat, saying things that, well, you know, it's impossible. You just relax and your throat's open. If you engage muscles, then there's tension, you know. And uh, then along comes research where somebody, like you're saying, Marissa, uh, says, hey, you know what? As a matter of fact, here's what the tongue does when you're doing X, Y, or Z, or E, 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 whatever it mm -hmm. is. Um, I remember, uh, Vinny was my first teacher. I remember he wrote in page 42 of my Arbins, you know, I, E, 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 I. Which was effective, but now I'm thinking, oh, oh man, I have to may edit that out for, uh, for Venny's sake. But yeah. well, you know, um, but I wonder if he would change his tune. A lot of the books say "ae," and that is a good general guide because, in fact, as I said, if if the syllables I'm using or the positions I'm using are positions that you don't use anywhere on planet Earth in any language, well, you can't write that on page one, whatever of your right. Harper's book. You know what I mean? So, "ae" as um, a lot of teachers use as the Irons book and many other books use. It's a good general, it's like it kind of mm -hmm. gets, gets mm -hmm. your tongue moving. And, and it, it's such a personal thing um, that if you start with AE and you go in a practice room and you mess around with it, it's going to probably get you in the ballpark. Right. What I try to do now, based on what Marissa's done, is I try to actually vocalize 
with that tongue position. So it's more like mm, something like that, not e. Mm, it's more like that, you mm. know. I don't know if that's going to come through on your recording. Yeah, now, you know, but 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 that's kind of the idea. And I don't start with that. I certainly don't. Like, hey, lesson one, can you make this sound? Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. right. But specifically, if a student is having difficulty in the upper register, rather than say, okay, I, 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 I'll say, can you do this? Okay, great. Put some wind behind it. And um, I, it's, it's kind of been shocking. This, mm -hmm. this seems to be pretty effective mm -hmm. to do it that way. Versus simply say E, and based on her research, a lot of people aren't using E. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And. Uh, yeah, so, you know, there have been some others. I don't know if she uses, is it fMRI or whatever that, to, you know, where you can actually uh, watch things happen in the MRI machine. But it's it's a way that, you know, usually you're static. You're strapped mm -hmm. in and there's no motion. It's a special kind of MRI that okay. allows movement. And there's been, you know, they've manipulated or, or maneuvered a camera into a certain position where you can see, or x-ray, uh, MRI, not x-ray. You can see what the tongue's doing, mm -hmm. and you know it's like you're saying, "Oh my gosh, it doesn't do, it doesn't do anything that we thought it did." Yeah, she does ultrasound. It's an ultrasound headgear he wears. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Is she presenting at this particular idea at ITG? Um, I think in the future she would like to. Mm -hmm. um, she presented last week at the UK Summer Trumpet Institute, and hopefully. We will eventually. I, I believe we video recorded that, so we might be able to put that up online. Well, I know she's doing a master, or she's doing something there because she's on the docket. I think she's going to do a warm-up right? class. Oh, okay. yeah, gotcha. For the youth day, I believe. Gotcha. Um, but even thinking about Arvin's uh, and the whole two coup, two coup, and there are people who say, but the French mm -hmm. wouldn't have said a hard T that way. You know, it's like, well, the best way to get the idea across, but. Um, you know, I, I kind of like this because it means we're not stuck. We're, we're learning, and if, if it means getting uncomfortable and having to change our, our ways in teaching, you know, that's mm -hmm. great because then future generations are going to benefit from, from this. But, uh, um, so you like early music, obviously. Um, you like contemporary music. Yeah, you know, I probably on the other end of the spectrum, what I play the most is contemporary music. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't done this for a couple of years, but I have this program I do of all electronic music, all really new music that's uh, the ink still wet on the page <laughs> with for trumpet, mostly in fixed media, and I'll travel with that sound system you see right over there, that mm -hmm. with the big it's a Fender Passport over there, and um, I've gosh I've probably done that program fifty times at different universities mm -hmm. around the country, and um, I, I just haven't done it for a little while, but I've published uh, you know there's a I guess it was maybe 20, I've forgotten when it was now, before I came here, maybe 2012 or so, I published the first anthology of about 74, 75 pieces of mm. repertoire for trumpet with electroacoustic accompaniment. And then I kind of picked about my favorite five or six and took those on the mm -hmm. road and, and traveled with those. Um, I also am a composer myself, so mm -hmm. I write a lot of music. I have two uh, compositions that have world premieres in a couple weeks here at ITG. Nice. So for, for those reasons, I like I like new music. Um, so yeah, I'm a big advocate of new music. I I just took over this year as chair of ITG New Works. So if there's anyone out there listening who is a composer or performer who wants to give a world premiere yeah. of or have their new their new piece a world premiere, you can send an email to newworks at trumpetguild.org, and I'll get that email and mm -hmm. I'll help um, promote that piece. Mm -hmm. at, at this year's conference there'll be two recitals full of new repertoire, great mm -hmm. new stuff by, by composers from all around the world, really. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I love new music, I like new stuff, and I, I just like music, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't wanna be the kind of person who's like, well, I'm, this guy does early music, you know? I, I think, you know, um, some people specialize, you know? And, um, and at the same time, I don't wanna, you know, be sort of jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> I just sort of love um, getting back to the daily routine I do every day. I try to be a really good trumpet player. Mm -hmm. I have control to tame that beast, that to tame that, right. as Vince Martino says, to tame that mechanical device. Mm -hmm. So I could be a musician, whether it be um, playing early music on the Baroque trumpet, playing electroacoustic music. Um, as we walked in, we were talking to Chase Hawkins a little bit mm -hmm. about the Orfeo I just played on cornetto, mm -hmm. you know, a wooden uh, Renaissance instrument. So I just like music, and yeah. um, in, in whatever form it may come. Yeah. So when you compose, uh, you compose at the trumpet. 
or at the piano or a little bit of both or um let's see well it depends what i'm writing usually and unless i'm by no means am i a mozart or a beethoven or anything but usually i try to write down what i hear in my head first mm -hmm. so i'm working right now on a unaccompanied trumpet piece that is kind of in my head and i've played it on my trumpet you know what i mean mm -hmm. i just got to write it down or a couple things that don't quite work i'll treat i'll tweak so that one is mostly kind of in my head but i uh maybe smooth things out a little bit mm -hmm. on the trumpet mm -hmm. um every year i'll do one two or three pieces for my students to play at the national trumpet competition those i usually do write with a trumpet in my hand because mm -hmm. i'm trying to make the music um, as playable and as idiomatic as possible. Right. I'm trying to avoid any of those gnarly uh, fingerings that's going to eat up three hours of our rehearsal. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm trying to make, you know, smooth out those things. Or if even if I'm arranging something, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I just got started today on something for, for next year. Mm -hmm. And um, I was working through, I'm like, ah, this key, I could tell by the second measure, this key's <laughs> not going to work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, for me, my piano chops are pretty horrible. So the only time I really use a, a piano to compose is if I'm writing something for with the pianos involved, which mm -hmm. I don't write, do that very much. Mm -hmm. I've only got a small handful of pieces for trumpet and piano that I've written. Mm -hmm. um, but I, if I'm doing that, then I'll kind of see if I if me being a lousy piano player can grab those notes on the piano, right. probably a good one can. And usually, if I'm going to do something for piano, I've got a few piano buddies. I'll send them the PDF. I'm like, hey, what did I screw up here? Can you just <laughs> tell me anything that's, right. that's really bad? Right. But so. Um, yeah, usually I start in my head. If it's a trumpet ensemble thing, I'll, I'll, I'll play it on the trumpet for sure. And if it's got some piano involved, I might use some piano too. Um, well, okay. So, and this happens with everybody. It's like we could keep going. Um, there's a lot of great information today. I really appreciate you sharing everything you've done. Um, I want to leave it so maybe at some point we can follow up. We can sure. pick up and uh, continue the discussion. Um, but Jason, thank you ever so much for the time today and, uh, and best of luck with everything, further endeavors here at UK and with uh, Baroque and non-Baroque instruments as it were. Great, so, thank you, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you too can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studio HFL. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews.